0: This is a podcast from 3RR102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, uh 3 Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas, and Emma Westwood. All back in the cave again. Good evening to you all. Good
0: evening. That was beautiful, Emma. Uh,
2: it was kind of like a hangover from Radiothon. That one.
1: The Radiothon <laughs> show was a, went pretty off the rails.
2: <laughs> it, <laughs> it was.
1: It was a, 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 t- a tad silly and a, a little bit raucous. Crazy. Yeah. Yes, it was. Um, a huge thank you to everybody who took part in the Radiothon show last week. The four of us had an enormous amount of fun, and a huge thank you to original Plato's Cave member Tara Judah who who joined us for that and also our podcast producer and editor Faith Everard who who jumped on the mics Um, she wasn't invited to she just grabbed the mic and (laughs) said (laughs) I will be on the show Um, we will hear more from Faith I'm sure in the future possibly after we all die mysteriously (laughs) and
2: all about it (laughs) may
3: not be that much of a mystery anymore I
1: suspect Uh, no it was really wonderful having everybody on the the mics And, and a huge thank you to Everybody who subscribed I mean it was fantastic having so much love for the station coming over the that that hour and having so many of you uh, specially dedicate your subscription to us here in Plato's cave it actually it means an enormous amount to us to sort of get that recognition because we don't know who listens we don't know what we're doing half the time <laughs> no, <laughs> and it's so lovely lonely. I can <laughs> vaguely
0: remember your guy's names Frank. <laughs> <laughs>
1: As it, also, it coincided nicely with the Melbourne International Film Festival as well. Um, and that, that's also the time of the year too where, I don't know about you, you lot, but I, that's the only time during the year where I randomly get stopped by people who recognise my voice and say, I've heard you on Plato's Cave. And most of them then say nice things. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm not saying
0: anything. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's
1: really, really appreciated. Speaking about Radiothon, though, we're now in the pay-up period. So, if, if you didn't, if you weren't in a position to pay for your subscription at the time over the last uh, ten days, uh, you can still pay up by you can still do so before five pm on Wednesday, the twentieth of September. So you've got you've got a month, and um, if you pay up during this next four weeks, you will still go into the running for all the really fabulous prizes on offer, including all the daily prizes. So, so please, if if you haven't actually come th- come good yet on your subscription, do so over the next 30 or so days. Uh, I haven't mentioned what we're doing tonight on the show. We're going to be looking at three films released earlier this month that we weren't able to discuss at the time because of MIF. Uh, so do stay tuned to hear about the rom-com The Big Sleep, the Cold War uh, action. Big, is the big <coughs> Sick. Big Sorry Sick. Sorry about that. <laughs> I, went a, I, I went a bit Freudian and just big, slipped in one of my all-time favourite films. Yes. I could talk about The Big Sleep for the next hour quite happily. Can we talk
0: about The Big
2: Steal? Let's just talk about The Big Steal can, we well. can we all have a big sleep? That's what I'm wondering.
1: That, that's the spirit. Uh, the, the rom-com The Big Sick is the film we will be talking about. We're also going to be taking a look at the Cold War action thriller Atomic Blonde. And the latest film in the English The Trip series, The Trip to Spain. But before we launch into that, we all got some really bad news this morning. And that was um, the, the passing, the the, the death of, of Jerry Lewis. One week, Emma, after you did your amazing impersonation of him as part <laughs> we're, of we're radio We're not saying on. there's
3: necessarily oh a link. God. God.
1: <laughs> that that was Draw
3: <laughs> your own conclusion. <laughs> Emma, <laughs> Emma, did you
2: kill Jerry Lewis? Oh, gee, this
0: are, Yeah, I but feel like. But this is like sad. This
1: is I know this has hit some of you pretty hard because he, he's a beloved figure to so many of us. Well,
0: there was that beautiful retrospective of his directorial output at the f- Melbourne International Film Festival last, last year, year that yeah. many of us went to, and I think it filled a lot of gaps. Um, I think a lot of us know films like The Nutty Professor. You know, a lot of us know him as a performer, so, you know, obviously The King of Comedy, I think, is a really big one, but the films with Dean Martin that he did. Um, but as a director, he really doesn't get the props that he deserves, and that that retrospective at Miff last year, I think, was really important. Not just the big ones like um, Yeah, Nutty Professor and, and The Ladies' Man, but things like The Bellboy, his directorial debut, which is an extraordinary film from 1960 right through to things like Smorgasbord, which honestly has one of the funniest suicide scenes I've ever seen in a movie.
2: Mm, um, which was really interesting because I listened to uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum doing the intro for that film when he talked about uh, how uh, Jerry Lewis himself had tried to commit suicide not long before that film so it was strangely that kind of um, you know the sad clown um, kind of episode and it's an unusual film too because it's kind of a little bit out of its time but that's the thing with Jerry Lewis I think that a lot of people it kind of depends where you come into him in your viewing Um, he can seem a bit out of his time but um, he has been his um, whether what you think of him personally I think he was a rather prickly gent for a lot of people to
0: have hung out with him, I'll,
2: no, I'd say that. No, I'm glad I never got to meet or talk to him. He was a very notoriously a bad interviewee and very difficult, but um, a genius Regardless, This is this separation of personal from professional life (laughs) and uh, his influence is just um, unbelievable. And as you said, Alex, you know, we just didn't realise that his directorial output... I mean, I love the way that Miff just showed the films that he actually directed because we all think of him as this clown performer and a stage performer as well. He did a lot of stage stuff too, but um, also he was an incredibly um, influential in... Actual filmmaking. He I was think a
0: stylist. I mean, yeah. the ladies' man is. I mean, to me, the ladies', ladies man. The ladies' is man is, is as devastating visually yeah. as something like um, the young girls of Rochefort and um, Umbrellas of Cherbourg that we did that we watched last year. I is know it that the, that's the a film where the
1: side of the building? Yeah, It's like a doll dollhouse. And, yeah, the yeah. Doll basically, house basically a dollhouse. Yeah.
0: It's just a. Um, you know, there's always that joke. Ha ha ha. The French really like Jerry Lewis. The yes. eye roll. The eye roll. This kind of quasi racist, and it's it's like because he made really European films. I mean, the Bell Boys is just, is, is uh, you know, a Tati homage. Like, it's beautiful. Mm.
2: But he also, he, he also created things like, I think, the first Video Assist um, as director and uh, a performer. So, he was someone who actually influenced the technical side of filmmaking. The Jerry Lewis story to delve into is amazing. So, basically, we've lost a giant, but at 91, wonderful career in uh, life. So, really one to be celebrated, and maybe I'd say.
3: within the next few years we'll get to see the suppressed oh, yeah. um, I
0: can't wait. Clown oh, I yes.
3: cannot
2: wait. I know. Mm. That was his um, Nazi mm. clown film. Mm. Yes.
1: Yeah. yes. May not be the best way to honour his legacy by watching this film, no. from what I've heard, but I, I, I'm morbidly curious like everybody else Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: It sounds like a random point of comparison, but Kubrick was so against Clockwork Orange being released in his lifetime mm. and that mm. actually readily became, I think I had like a Dutch VHS bootleg of that for years and i think that was the one that went around but after he passed away suddenly that became
1: went back into cinemas yeah yeah it went on to home entertainment it did and it'll be interesting to see
0: i mean obviously there's different backstories to the to the suppression of these films but it's um going to be interesting what happens to that film especially you know nazis are in the news
2: unfortunately yes
1: well, oh boy, how are we going to move on to another comedy now in, in, in the shadow of Jerry Lewis? It's a
0: really dark comedy, if that helps.
1: It is, yeah. actually. It is. OK, well, we can do this justice. The Big Sick is an American romantic comedy that is a fictionalised account of how the film's writers, Emily V. Gordon and Kumal Najimani, met, fell in love and then had to deal with their cultural differences as Kumail comes from a traditional Pakistani Muslim family who believe in arranged marriages within the Muslim community. They also had to deal with the fact that Emily fell into a life-threatening coma. Kamal, who has a background in acting and stand-up comedy, plays himself in the film, while Emily is played by actor Zoe Kazan. Other key casts include Holly Hunter and Ray Romano, who play Emily's parents. An Indian actor... And Mupam Kerr, who plays Kumal's dad, and this is really cool, that was his 500th film. (gasps) Oh, my God. So he's an actor not a lot of Americans know, but he's huge in India. And apparently when Kumal was... Casting this film, his dad joked, "Oh, you know, you you should go and get this guy to play me because his dad was a massive fan of this actor, and to have this actor then actually play his dad apparently just blew his mind." And they met on set, and it was all rather gorgeous. But um, yeah, the big six sort of we we don't get many rom coms that we end up discussing on Plato's Cave, but I I think. This film has come with a lot of uh, interest and attention from overseas and um, not unlike the Australian film Ali's Wedding actually, it, um, which is coming out in a few weeks, it looks at the Muslim community and how it, how it um, is situated within mainstream American community or in the case of Ali's Wedding, mainstream Australian community. Um, society Mm -hmm. but I think that is what makes this film really really interesting it's one of the first films we've seen to deal with um, Muslim Americans in a way that isn't what we are so used to in terms of sensationalism and Mm. and um, yeah all the paranoia and bigotry yeah anyway so I'm I'm, I'm babbling a little (laughs) bit I, I really really dug this film I'm very curious to know what the rest of you thought of the big sick
2: Oh, uh, yes, i yes i i really i really i really enjoyed it I did really enjoy it. I thought it was interesting that um, this film really played on timelines in an interesting way i mean I felt that it's it's almost like in in America we've we've seen that exploration of the the black the black white relationships but the white brown relationships for some reason it felt really foreign and and I kind of went jeez we haven't come that far or American cinema hasn't come that far there's a little been a little bit of it in Australian cinema but also things like the 9/11 jokes and That was my
0: that was my yeah, favorite yeah, bit. this, this film has amazing, The
1: best 9/11 joke I've ever heard. Yes it's
0: so perfect.
1: The delivery, everything. The the 9-11 joke.
0: (laughs) And I went,
2: oh, we can make those jokes now. Do you know what I mean? It was just kind of this passing of time. And the fact that he wasn't a taxi driver, he was an Uber driver. (laughs) And... (laughs) There were just really interesting, you know, things in terms of time with this film. But, um, and also the way that it did shift with the, with the big sick itself in the, in the film, that it did shift to not so much about his parents but more about her parents and then that development of that relationship with her parents which are, who are played by Ray Romano and Holly Hunter very well, I must say. I, I thought they were really excellent. I
1: it. thought they were great. I, mm. I, Ray Romano does the kind of sad sack, dr- tragic kind of pathetic thing really, really well. I he does. I really liked him in this. He, he's not an actor people go in expecting to like, but I, I, I thought he really shone.
0: I have to pack a bong for Ray Romano. I have a story. So when in the late, was the late 90s at South Park was a big thing yes. and everybody would run home and watch South Park, it used to be screened on SBS with a little show called Dr. Cat's Professor. Therapist. Yes, which is coming but back. I loved it mm. then. I love it now. I think it's an extraordinary program. I think it's really... I love the setup. But Ray Romano was a regular guest on that. Mm-hmm. And he was hilarious. He, he was just one of the funniest quote-unquote, patience in that. And uh, when I heard that Ray Romano was going to have his own sitcom, I was thrilled. <laughs> and then it ended up being Everybody Loves Raymond. Nobody loved Raymond.
1: I, I uh, actually don't mind oh. it. But, yeah. Well, some oh, people like Raymond. Thomasly <laughs> rated very I wish no, they I, called
0: I, that sitcom Thomas Loved Thomas Raymond. Thomas is the only person
1: who loved Raymond. Yeah, my housemates <laughs> at the time thought I was very weird. I, I really like a lot of the actors I, in that I show. I really like I, Ray Romano. It's, it's I the think persona. A, yeah, I like the actors. And I think... It, it I was, think
0: I think that that series in a way that the mass appeal of it I think really ruined the the kind of the dark, quirky aspect of Romano's performance and I yes. think we saw that in yeah. Dr Katz and I think that really comes out um, in in The Big Sick and that was just a, a treat. For me, the strongest parts of this film, and I did really like it, were the, was less the relationship between the couple themselves and more the relationship between uh, Kamel's character himself, he plays he, himself in the film, uh, and the parents. I, mm. I found that really um, just riveting, just absolutely riveting.
3: Yeah, Romano and Holly Hunter are not an obvious... <laughs> <laughs> coupling uh, I, um, I, I, I thought they were, they were terrific uh, they're playing a couple with this tensions in, in their relationship and and that's just communicated very very well not necessarily in any particularly uh, overt uh, gesticulatory sort of way but just in terms of uh, you just sense it there's a chemistry there that's not firing and it's um, something that just comes I think of good acting uh, not capital A acting just good acting and Romano is fabulous He's, he is a brilliant sad sack comedian Uh, I think he would be amazing in a mafia film. If somebody actually cast him as a baddie, I think he would just own that. I I agree. agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's just crying out to happen, I think. Uh, Cerise I, yeah. has
2: given that to some uh, some on the ball film producer for free yeah Twice. sure
3: <laughs> maybe yeah actually I'll, mm. um, and uh, yeah I've I really enjoyed this film too I found it very very funny reasonably touching but um, I think it's actually quite a naively directed film there's a lot in it that's Not exactly slapdash, but it's sort of hack compositions. Uh, There's there's a scene really towards the end that I felt looked so strange because suddenly Holly Hunter, I mean, I know she's small, but she suddenly looks... Minute with uh, Ray Romano looming in the background, and it looks strangely ominous, and it 's not meant to be I think it 's just a bad composition <laughs> and there are moments throughout like that where the the directing uh, the, the setup the blocking of it all is just very perfunctory, and occasionally it, it gives a weird resonance to people like me at least viewing it, who want to project perhaps more meaning than the, is it all meant to be there, but it 's just some weird setups that occasionally just threw me slightly out of the film as a uh, a viewer. Um,
0: I would agree with that. I think that there are some clunky moments, perhaps. I think the last scene is... Clunk is corny. I could have lived without the very last scene. I'm not going to give any spoilers oh, as to yes. what that was. Oh, but, I, I, I
1: fell for it. But I think, that this, <laughs> I think that this film
0: gets away with a hell of a lot because it's based on the true story of the actual performer and the woman who wrote it. Emily Gordon, um, both Kamel and Emily, the real Emily Gordon are both on Twitter and one of my favourite things when I was just sort of, you know, just doing a random sort of hunt around about this film, um, somebody asked the real Emily Gordon about the photographs of her when she was young, a young god. There's a moment where Holly yes. Hunter, as the mother, is showing the, the boyfriend the embarrassing photos of the teen goth. And the real Emily Gordon has actually posted the real photos of her as the awkward teen goth, you know, posed in a tree and in her, in her, in her velour cape. She's, she's put them online and it's – I mean, I think, that, um, I think that this film gets away with a hell of a lot because of this um, – this honesty, this sincerity, and the, you know the direct involvement, um, perhaps it 's indulgent, but I think it 's a story that justifies and gives them permission to be indulgent but it 's yeah.
1: curious we 're talking everyone 's been talking about this film in light of the actors and, and the writers, and also um, a few people have mentioned the fact that a, Judd Apatow was involved as well and was yes. sort of a, a mentor on it the, the director, the guy called Michael showalter has never really been mentioned, and just looking up his filmography he's, he, he appears to be very much a director for hire with nothing really to distinguish him and and I think as
2: Cerise has just pointed out yeah and, and, I, and
1: I think that it, it does come through that direction was not you know really a leading artistic force on this film but um it, it it's it's um a curious thing about this film is it kind of plays out as if we don't know that she's going to get very sick all of a sudden, but that's in the film's title and all the promotion. yet we sort of do a weird suspension of disbelief while watching it, pretending that we don't know that's going to happen. And the one thing that happens to their relationship before that moment is the only fictitious element. Hang on, he's the main fictitious element in the film. Their relationship dynamic changes in the film in a way that doesn't change, that didn't change in real life. And I I actually would have preferred they stuck closer to what was happening in real life because I thought that was one of the weaker plot points. But look, I, you know, I, I don't think we've emphasised how much this is it's just a really funny film, and mm. it's, it's He's amazing.
0: He's a really strong performer. He's a really out.
1: natural performer, and Zoe Kazan gets some really great moments as well. And the interplay with both sets of parents, I think, is really gorgeous. But I just want to again reinforce that idea that. I don't think I've seen a film that kind of deals with culture clash, especially Muslim and white American, say, Christian culture clash, in a way that's quite as sophisticated as this. And especially in the way it portrays the Muslim community and their attitudes to um, arranged marriage. And we should also, you know, I should acknowledge that the Muslim community is actually quite diverse in scope as well. I mean, this is a particular type of Pakistani Muslim. Um that there, there isn't any cultural relativity applied, but there's no hardcore condemnation either. It's sort of a... this yeah. is This is the family dynamic in all its... You know, you might see it as flawed, you might see it as imperfect, but we're not going to pretend it's all cool as well either. And there's I a, thought that was really sophisticated. I would
0: pick up on that. I think there's a really important scene in this movie that would be very easy to just sort of... Because it doesn't really fit into the main narrative, but uh, it's when Kamal is with... Um, a woman that his parents are trying to set him up in an arranged marriage with and it's a conversation that they have between themselves and this woman gets to speak and I think it's really interesting what she says because the narrative is so focused on his resistance to uh, having an arranged marriage, we don't hear from the women. There's kind of this ongoing comic gag where women kind of turn up supposedly accidentally at dinner time for him to meet, and all and, hot
2: women. Can I? Just yeah, say. beautiful women. And, I and he at wasn't one doing point, one bad. of those women actually gets <laughs> to turn
0: around and say, "Look, this isn't easy for me either. I'm in the same culture. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the same kind of cultural jam that you are. Don't you dare tell me that this is your problem. I've, you know, this is not easy for me either." And I and I think it's a really like it's it's a small moment. It doesn't feed into the main storyline, but I think that giving that woman a right... To present her, yep. you know, it's like thirty seconds. It's it's very brief, but I think it's a really important moment in the film's politics. And we
1: get, we get the parents' point of view too in a moment that's quite surprising. Oh, the mother is wonderful, yeah. Yeah. and She's we realise that they're compassionate, good people, but that they come from a certain set of traditions that's not um, fusing perfectly with the country mm. they now live in. And I, it's just so refreshing to see a film deal with these issues in such a, a warm-hearted and, um, and and generous way. Well,
2: strangely, he sort of took a back seat a lot of the time in the the action as well. He, he almost felt like a little bit of an observer. It wasn't like he was a someone who was dominating the commentary or anything like that. He allowed everyone to have their say and and that must be really hard I mean this we, this, this is kind of still a new phenomenon of seeing someone playing themselves on, um, on screen in that way um, You know Stephen Colbert did it for a number of years on his show and has had to transition and we've got another example of that coming up tonight. Well, but but I think
1: We've, and we'll talk about this later yeah, tonight when we yeah. get on a trip to Spain but I think the exaggerated version of your persona we've seen for quite a while now like ever since the early 90s with the Larry Sanders show but I think oh yes yeah yeah, yeah. but I think we don't yeah. see so much of this where the person plays a very close version of themselves mm. There's mm. actually a, I mean that there, there are other yeah, examples yep, yep. there's but a Dean not Martin and Jerry
0: Lewis film where there's Dean Martin and kidding. Jerry Lewis I can't remember the name but yeah. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis play two characters with different names who are going to Vegas to meet Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis <laughs> so oh. they I can't and, remember the name and
2: of it. So it's... Dean, Dean Martin obviously plays himself in Kiss Me Stupid, the Billy Wilder mm-hmm. film. He's playing a crooner, a sleazebag crooner. He doesn't name himself, but he is obviously playing himself. I'd
3: have no idea whether Kamau was playing himself or not anyway. <laughs> i never encountered him before. So it's all, I just took that at first. You came to this without knowing the backstory? Well, I knew he was a comedian, yep. and that's as
1: much as I knew. But so, you weren't aware it was based very closely on real I'm uh, vaguely I
3: mean, aware but even then I don't know what the real events are yeah. or who they are yeah. these people are so it meant that meant nothing to me and it still worked well
1: yeah, that, it still worked absolutely that's worked. very Beautiful. good that, that's great we've been talking about the big secrets still on uh, general release all throughout Melbourne um, sounds like we all enjoyed that one
0: you're listening to a podcast from community Radio 3 rrr R in Melbourne Australia
1: Atomic Blonde is the new film directed by stuntman David Leitch. It's Leitch's first solo outing as a director, as before this he shared the directing duties with Chez Staleski on the first John Wick film. Uh, His next film will be the Deadpool sequel. Atomic Blonde is based on the 2012 graphic novel The Coldest City and it stars Charlize Theron as an elite spy working for MI6, who is sent to Berlin in 1989, in the days leading up to the collapse of the Berlin Wall. Her mission is to recover a piece of microfilm that contains the names of every active field agent in the Soviet Union. Upon arriving in Berlin, she is almost immediately put in danger and discovers she can trust nobody. Other key cast members include James McAvoy, John Goodman, Toby Jones, Eddie Marzin and Sophia Butella. Did yeah. we enjoy Atomic Blonde? Who I, wants to jump in I, Well, I'll jump in. First. I mean, I have a crazy, mixed-up notion that there's going
3: to be a, a variety of opinions on the merits of this film. But I, I have a very <laughs> fresh memory of it because I saw it just this very morning in a cinema all to myself. And I I, I was there. I was in Berlin uh, ten days before the wall came down. I mean, I know, actually, secretly it was largely budapest but that's not important right now <laughs> um though I, i'm quite enjoying watching all these other cities play berlin it keeps coming up time and again Ber- berlin during the cold war is a, a favorite setting for arthouse filmmakers as well as hollywood types at the moment um and it's very seldom berlin because there's was uh, anyway i'm getting uh, off track already I, I i really enjoyed this i i i found it very uh visceral in its biffo scenes especially the one that comes towards the close which is quite epic and reminded me of that peculiar Welsh-Indonesian hybrid film The Raid um, that Battles in Stairwells uh, the choreography there and the, the sheer uh, brutality of it and the, the um, seemingly uh, single-takeness of bits of were very impressive choreography and Charlize uh, you know, she, she took it she took quite a few blows uh, I felt them um, I felt the ones dished out as well. I enjoyed the intrigue, even though it's sort of by the, the book. It's cross, double cross, trust no one. We've been there countless times before. We know the rules of these sort of genre flicks. But I still had so much fun with this. I, I enjoyed the you know, James McAvoy really hamming it up as a, an obviously... Uh, the, <laughs> Seems uh, to be what he does now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He's Go in, full ham and cheese. Well, he hasn't quite gone. He's just not up there with Nick Cage yet. but that's <laughs> true. No, um, give him time. The thinking
0: person's Nick yeah. Cage.
3: <laughs> the, the trajectory is there, isn't it, though? He's embarked upon it, I feel. Uh, Toby Jones is actually in every film that ever comes out, I as, think, these as days. As God he, he should be. be. Yeah. You're the
0: great, completely right. But he's just Toby ubiquitous, Jones.
3: isn't he? Um,
0: mm. God, he's amazing.
3: Yeah, he's a good. I do like him, but I just marvel at, uh, well, maybe it's not anything much compared agent. to Indian actor whose name, Thomas, you may have murdered before, <laughs> well, I don't who know. Who knows? <laughs> um, it's anybody's yeah, so, guess. <laughs> who who knocked out 500 credits already, but um, <laughs> Toby must be getting towards 50? I don't know. It's, uh, it, he's, he's around a lot. Um, this, is, this is quite good fun. I mean, it, it's, I, I don't know the graphic novel. I didn't even know it existed. Um, I'm quite intrigued by its setting, because the, the wall and it's uh, coming down is something that's still very much in my uh, memory. Uh, I wasn't particularly old when it happened, but I remember it all Mm. very clearly. And all all of the events around that time are significant to me as a director of a Czech and Slovak film festival because their revolution was contemporaneous, of course, with the Berlin Wall coming down. And uh, so I have a real interest in that period. And I find it really interesting to set a a biffo, spy, uh, intrigue-type number in that period. It's all extremely fanciful, and yet some of the period detail is quite accurate. And um, I enjoyed lines like... uh, I actually enjoyed Eddie Marsden as a, an obvious Stasi-looking person. You know just how they're meant to look, and he's cast perfectly, and he looks that, and apparently smells it too. <laughs> Charlie's had a lovely line about it, as you could smell the Stasi on him. And uh, yeah,
2: Did I don't make you miss the Cold War. I, well,
3: <laughs> has it ended?
1: <laughs> Discuss.
2: There's something else. <laughs> well, the, 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 the interesting
1: thing, thing about the Berlin Wall coming down as a setting is when that happened, I think there was a sense of the time of, well, obviously communism is over now, it's it's all over, and then films like these are showing us that it, it, it's just one of many events and there was still the skullduggery and the intrigue and the, and, and the violence and the secrecy that w- continued long past this and is still going on to different degrees. Yeah. So but well, it, it is interesting that a lot of filmmakers, from different genres are now exploring this this pe- period in history
3: well more that people come to realize that when regimes fall that elites tend to continue somehow they just morph slightly but often the same people remain yeah. uh, in the upper echelons of power similarly all the people who are the the bit players who are on the ground doing all of the dirty work for the the big folk um they still have to work in this, operate in this land of intrigue and danger and peril and trust nobody. Uh, and I think this film just operates nicely in that area. That That is, it gives it a slight freshness that uh, this is a film suggestive of a continuum that uh, things like this event, like The Wall Come Down, it isn't the end of an era, exactly. It's just the start of a new phase, but there will will be continuity.
2: Yes, yes. I I, I think I felt similar to Cerise with this film. I really did enjoy um, its use of music, particularly. I think that um, we've spoken about this, Thomas and I certainly did with Mike, about um, Baby Driver and the use use of music. I actually think that it it really equaled um, Baby Driver in the, on that level, and the way that it actually chose to the beats, it chose to hit, and how it cut the music into the action, I thought was was excellent, and also um, that time, um, 1989 my last year of school actually so the music played a, a large a large part of uh, that year for me and therefore I recognised a lot in the film and I didn't think it was all so obvious it was they actually played on things like um, they played the After the Fire version of Der Commissar rather than mm. Falco which was kind of the more obvious one to use but maybe it was a licensing reason I don't know or whether it was an artistic reason but then they also tended to bring back the songs across the film in in little refrains, which I thought were really quite uh, spectacular. And um, as you spoke of, uh, Cerise, it was that um, fight sequence in the stairwell. Um, it, it felt like that there were very short, kind of short episodic scenes leading up to that. I think it was interesting to hear that the the director was um, had directed some stuff on John Wick because I actually wrote a note during the screening, which was John Wick with with the chick in there, um, so I could definitely see the parallels um, so it was sort of these nice little little short episodes up to there, and then that scene was really given you know central space and a, a lot of air around it and a lot of much more length. And then it came, it sort of cut in with um, Iran ran by flock mm. of seagulls in a, quite a spectacular way. I found it to be a hoot, in uh, Cerise's words. It's Very interesting enjoyable.
0: that you uh, that you bring up the music because that was actually one of my major bugbears with this film because I think Ooh. it revealed a strong same laziness. But you go first. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I have a deep passion for uh, the new German wave. And there's two points in this film where they they emphasise it's it's in the script where they say this is a really like there's a lot happening in music in Berlin at the moment. So they they explicitly flag that there is a really vibrant mu- music scene going on in this city at this time and I think that this film flagrantly rejects that in favour of Western friendly top 40 If you go through, I mean if you go through There's a couple of songs like they, they do Nina Which I think is an obvious choice but perhaps That's an essential obvious. one yeah. De Commissar yeah. I think you couldn't do a film about Berlin in 1989 and not have a Depeche Mode song On it and mm-hmm. I like that it was behind the wheel It wasn't one of the more obvious ones mm-hmm. This was the year before Violator came out Which of course German basic Germany basically had A, a year off to celebrate the release Of mm. Depeche Mode's Violator <laughs> But I mean the new German yeah. wave like So much rich music that they could have dealt with that would have given it so much so much historical context that they that they explicitly flag in the film i mean i'm not even talking about the more kind of i'm not talking about daff or x deutschland but stuff like nina hagen if they re-scored this film with nina hagen especially with the queer aspect that hagen kind of brings it just would have been more german um it just felt like some 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 non-german uh they're mixed tape and I just thought there was it was a clutter of music I love most of the music that was in it but none of it was particularly German to me none of it spoke of what I was told from the film itself was a really vibrant cultural time and this fed into sorry Thomas I'll no, let you go, go in ahead. this fed into what for me I mean this should have been catnip for me this you know the John Wick director and Charlize Theron like that's that's my that's all I need from a film um she was amazing um, but stylistically um, I know that I go on about font a lot but I think that in film we privilege narrative perhaps a lot more over cinema as a design object and the little intertitles that say you know Berlin 1989 they just look like shitty yeah, they're a bit Banksy no clip art <laughs> <laughs> it was so <laughs> random and so, so this film yeah. struck me as like a 1980s Cold War Sin City I was so, you, I thought it could have been a great film you, and I thought it was a very ordinary
2: one Do you think it kind of, um, I, I felt that there was this sort of dominance of the british in it and that was probably reflected yeah. in the in the music well if you yeah. go through yeah. the, if you I actually yeah. went through
0: the top, the german charts for 1989 and david hasselhoff was in the charts like if you want to get some kind of <laughs> david hasselhoff like He's germany referenced in the film, yeah.
2: jerry
1: lewis yep. for France. My, <laughs> my issue with the music is it was just so cluttered. i um i used to go to some really shitty nightclubs when i left school in the mid mid 90s and always under duress because uh, i was you know I was hanging out with at the time, and they used to have, like, the half hour of, and now we're going to play all the songs for your alternative types, and it could have been the playlist from this exactly. film. It, it was, was abyss. Just, it was oh, abyss from 1997. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I love New Order, but Blue Monday was just like, ugh. And, and David Bowie's Cat People, which was used recently in Gloria's Bastards, and yeah, 99 Luft Balloons. I thought was a bit tragic. I just, uh, yeah, I, I can't, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I love the Baby Driver soundtrack so much, I thought this was the polar opposite of what you should yeah. do with the, the soundtrack. I thought it
0: was just a See? random mixtape that had nothing to do with yeah. the context. Um, like I said, there was one or two songs that fed in, but compared to what they could have used, compared to, and it's just it just drove me nuts, compared to, you know, they explicitly say in the film, there's really amazing things going on in the music scene here. It's like, well, how about you share some yeah, of that with I us? think it had
3: everything to do with the action, actually, the music, but the Hollywoodification of the story and there was yeah. a Hollywoodification yeah. soundtrack.
1: So I, I didn't like the use of the music either. There were too many scenes for me that started with the music Pumping, people walking in slow motion. I was like, yes, here we go. And then the scene ends with them going through a checkpoint or getting on a train. And the actual action was too far. There wasn't enough action for me. Too many scenes were really anticlimactic. I still overall enjoyed this because the action that was in there was superb and that scene we were all talking about towards the yeah. end, I'm assuming it had to be a fake long take as well yeah. um, or at least digitally manipulated. But regardless of how they created it, it's a little masterpiece of action cinema towards the end. But I found out a lot of this film, I was a little bit bored and frustrated and I felt it wasn't quite a sophisticated Cold War thriller in the style of, say, a John le Carré adaptation, but it wasn't also a really pulpy, fun John Wick or Kingsman type film either. So it just didn't quite sit into either niche for me. And although it really had some strong moments that made me glad I saw it, overall I was a little bit frustrated by this film because I reckon the seeds of something amazing were somewhere in there.
0: Well, uh, that's the, exactly how I feel. Yeah,
1: there might be the seeds of a franchise, of,
0: I would <laughs>
2: suspect, actually.
0: I think it's gone seeds really it well. I think Thomas and I <laughs> might be the only two people that were even remotely yeah. unimpressed by it. I actually haven't, I actually it. haven't
2: oh, read so it, the reviews. Has it been reviewed I think quite well? it in the States. Oh, did it really? Yes. Yeah. It, it, hasn't, it hasn't
1: done terribly well. I think most of the criticism has been the plotting has been convoluted. And, and I think... Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree that the plotting... Distracted from from yeah. the action. I
0: think she's a great character and puts in a great performance in a very ordinary film. And stylistically, I, I, I think it had ideas above it. I think it was punching above its weight. I think it had ideas would, above its station. I would
1: see a sequel if it came out because I really want to enjoy this world and this character. And, and I want
3: a Cold War film to be convoluted. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> it has to be convoluted.
0: <laughs> a, I just okay. want Nina Hagen. <laughs> but, but, but now I want
1: Nina to Hagen <laughs> too. Much. But do would, you know what yeah. I mean? I mean, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a good yeah. example of that beautifully convoluted, uh, you oh, know, but sophisticated so film, not which on is. But yeah, this
0: but, is it, though. I think it's trying, it's think, trying to do a punk rock yeah. Berlin Wall film and it fails yeah. because it's Goddamn Till Tuesday and, <laughs> and I Ran by Flock of Seagulls. There's a disconnect between the pop cultural references and the vibes that it's going for. It is trying to be this kind of anarchic punk rock thing, but it goes for this sort of Amway salesman neon... I don't know. The, the aesthetics were just all messed up for me. It just was sort of like a generic melange of quote-unquote 80s. That Did you say melange? Melange. Oh. Melange.
1: But I think Alex, I think you are, you and I are in the minority. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, I think look, you've you heard know,
1: both extremes for Atomic Blonde tonight.
2: Oh, it's certainly you know when you say extremes, it was fun. i yeah, it's just I'm good not fun. gonna I'm not going to um,
3: exalt uh, it. Yes, no. exactly. Yeah. No. It
2: was just, it was fun for me. I think um, probably uh, Charlize Theron might be better to get out of the chill Ice Queen um, role, but um, this was yeah.
0: very much her baby. I think she really was wrote it? this project. Uh, yeah, oh, okay. Yeah.
1: There you go. Three, triple, R. The Trip to Spain is the third instalment in the film and television series by English filmmaker Michael Winterbottom, where Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon play fictionalised versions of themselves as they travel around a country – in this case it's Spain, eat at amazing restaurants, contemplate ageing fame, family and fatherhood and do a bunch of celebrity impersonations. This time the rationale of the trip is Coogan wants to recreate a journey he took when he was younger as research for a memoir he is writing and Bryden is along for the ride to review the restaurants. Now as with the trip in 2010 where they travelled around Britain and then the trip to Italy in 2014, the trip to Spain exists as both a six-part television series and a feature-length film, which is an edited version of the series. I remember I watched the, the film and the TV show for the very first time Trip Mm -hmm. and came to the decision that I was better off just watching the the, the films. I I felt there was too much in in the series. It worked better for me as a film. So I've only seen the film version of The Trip to Spain which is what I believe you watched, Emma.
0: That's correct.
1: But Alex, you've watched the six-part TV series but not the film. That's
0: exactly right.
1: Well, I'm I actually felt this is the weakest of the trilogy and it felt padded compared to the previous films. So what was it like watching the TV series? I
0: think this issue of temporality with the Trip franchise is really important, and I um, I actually don't watch TV. I don't I don't, and it's not a snobbery thing. I just don't have time. Um, I prefer to watch films than TV series. But um, I make an exception for the trip because I think temporality is really important to the mood of these films. Road trips are long and tedious and boring, and. I think that the series I always binge watch them I always watch them in one sitting so I'm effectively watching a three hour movie yeah. um, and there's something about it being so drawn out that when they start getting irritated with each other you kind of feel it like you get irritated with them as well just because you spent so much time with them. Do you eat um, with them? Uh, look, you must be There must I, be uh, a drinking that.
3: game to be had. My, yes. my, <laughs> partner,
0: my partner um, absolutely hates these and he has you know and I've, I've heard critics say similar things that it's this kind of weirdly this weird colonial bougie rich guys just travelling around eating posh food um, just being kind of rich white men and it drives him insane he just loathes them and I I actually can't fault that except for the fact that I just love the characters of Steve Coogan and Rob Bryden, and I love them in Tristram Shandy, Michael Witterbottom's Tristram Shandy, which was, of course, where they were introduced. Yeah. There was such a spark between them there, and I love that they've, um, they've both, run with it. Both Coogan and mm. Bryden have said in interviews that, that they actually are playing themselves, but are kind of inflated versions of themselves. <laughs> um, I don't think Rob Bryden cheated on his
2: um, partner, for example. Wasn't just, that in the first the, one? In the second, second one. one. And in he's the second just the classic yeah. dad.
0: There's, I mm. just love the banter. I think that banter is very, very hard to. To do in film and I think that's something about watching the entire series when it's stretched out to three hours banter makes sense, I think a, a feature film of banter, I get why that doesn't work but for well, me I, I actually really like the, the temper, the, the boredom and that they fall, you know that road trip where you just start talking shit um, and I love how they fall into that. Sorry, road trip
3: or radio show? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you see I, I, mean, I love Trish and Shandy and I love the first two, the trip films, I don't know this one I, I enjoyed it fine, but the magic had gone for me a little bit and I, I think it's mainly because the novelty of celebrities playing exaggerated versions of themselves has really worn off for me now. I think I'm, it's been a good 30 years and I think I'm just a little bit over it. They do the same impersonations they've done before and they do, I mean i got plenty of laughs but it was a bit same old um, and I found the previous films had a really nice melancholic edge to them where, where this film I, I just no longer cared and I was also frustrated by the false endings with this film. Normally the the, the film Ends when they part company. This went on for another twenty minutes or so, and and really kind of started to kill what little love I had
0: left. I really, I, I, do, I still
1: enjoyed it. I, I
0: really like. There's a character called Emma, and we, we came. We were talking about. Um, I can't remember the actor's name, but Emma is played by a woman who was in an amazing series called Nathan Barley. <laughs> yep. yep. Um, and when Emma always, when Emma turns up in these trip films, um, I find that the dynamic is really interesting because she sort of has this polite amusement where you f- she you almost, she almost has contact embarrassment where it's just these old dads telling jokes and she's, she's not getting into is it. Is she and Steve
2: I, Coogan's? Um, Assistant, Assistant. Or, yeah. yes, yes, that's right. Oh, look, I don't have <laughs> a, a hell of a lot to contribute. Oh, look, it, it's you know, it's an extension of what it, 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 what the other ones were. I don't think they're necessarily cinematic experiences, but they're always a nice little way to pass the time, really, for me.
1: Do we want to see a fourth one, or are we all done? I feel like I'm done.
2: Would I enjoyed the Spanish and It
0: Depends, like, I the, do... the trip to North Korea, I'd see the yeah. hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> it. depends where they go. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, That's a good point. The trip to Bungendor, <laughs> I'd be down with that.
2: The, you know, All or just the trip, <laughs> the, tri- the trip to Bunnings.
0: The trip to Bunnings.
1: There we go. We've given away some cracking ideas here on Plato's Cave. Yeah, nah. Tonight, the trip to Bunnings, I think, being the best one yet. <laughs> the Big Sick is on general release, courtesy of Roadshow Films. Atomic Blonde is on general release, courtesy of Universal Pictures. And The Trip to Spain is on general release, courtesy of Man Entertainment. You've been listening to Thomas Caldwell, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood on Plato's Cave. The podcast version of the show is produced in